Hello everyone, welcome to Luke Law. A quick deep dive into a folklore topic where I share some of the stories from around the world that have piqued my interest. We appear to have broken time and space this episode, as this would have been a companion piece for the main show episode of Stories from Eastern Europe. That episode, sadly, is on the back burner for now though, but the folklore from Slavic countries was far too tempting for me so I've pounced early. The location-themed Ghost Story Guys episode will be here at some point, but it's in a zen, done-when-it-is-done state right now. No bugging Brennan to hurry it up. For now, though, on to the awesome folklore. A somewhat globally infamous witch. I thought I would start with what seemed like the most commonly known, that being Baba Yaga. This is a big one. I've recently taken a run at Baba Yaga through Wanda Fraser's Dark Art series, which gets a weekly reveal on Instagram as a shared project with the Ghost Story guys. Now, I had a passing familiarity with Baba Yaga. Not news, everyone does. Naturally, I'm a weirdo who grew up with some books containing fairy tales around Baba Yaga, but the concept of this witch is pretty well disseminated worldwide. Even with this, I wasn't quite ready. Baba Yaga really is something else. A witch with a house that walks around on giant chicken legs, who flies around in a pestle and mortar, with a taste for children who she consumes with her iron teeth. Heck, if absolutely nothing else, total tabula rasa, most people will have heard from Baba Yaga described as a Russian bogeyman thanks to the John Wick movies. Only... there's more to Baba Yaga. A lot more. We're talking thousands of stories across Slavic countries and beyond. Baba Yaga is basically their own field of folklore. You've got the basic parables. Stay out of the damn wild places, kids, or Baba Yaga will get you, or a wolf or something, just don't wander off. You have the furry tales with Baba Yaga as an antagonist. This is my first exposure to Baba Yaga, and these stories went global, taking the Slavic witch with them to people all over. Morality tales, with a focus on acts of kindness becoming key to survival in a harsh situation. That's all pretty standard stuff, but that isn't everything there is to know about Baba Yaga. It isn't just that there are a lot of stories about her, it's the variety too. Baba Yaga isn't always a fairy tale monster. There are plenty of stories where Baba Yaga helps people in need, very much in line with what you would expect about capricious fake creatures that have a duality of nature. Baba Yaga, even multiple versions of Baba Yaga, can enter a story in a similar role to that of the Greek fates. They can even directly intervene with kind acts, like a furry godmother you can't leave alone with children in case she eats one. Such as one story where a suitor, having mythic misadventures, goes on to lose their engagement ring in a vast forest. Baba Yaga appeared to return the lost possession to him, in some form of fairy tale cameo as she was just passing through this one story. I feel the need to point out that despite this, Baba Yaga is about as terrifying as any given depiction will show you. They are powerful, they will eat children, but they're also complicated. They're a force of nature that needs to be respected, with a lot more to them than just the bogeyman side. Even in the Children Are Delicious fairy tales, where a wicked stepmother sends unwanted children to the witch, there seems to be strange hints of complexity to the character there. Her powers are awe-inspiring, but follow very specific rules that can be used to prevent them. Baba Yaga herself can be strange within her role as a bogeyman. Here's a translated quote from one of the stories. Alright, I am not opposed to keeping you, children. If you satisfy all my wishes, I shall reward you. 
If not, I shall eat you up. Being devoured is a punishment for failure, not an inescapable fate. They're a complicated and fascinating folklore figure throughout their entire history. Even the modern depictions tend to be either complex, or else, when still simple, a cut above a generic evil witch story. Although, at risk of angering Baba Yaga, I would still recommend leaving them as a very last resort for babysitting. Never go down to the water. Another common figure within Slavic folklore that has disseminated into the wider global pop culture consciousness is the Rushalka. Frequently associated with the water, Rushalka are also depicted as mermaids quite a lot of the time. There's even a story of Rushalka that is remarkably similar to The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, very important note, the Disney movie is very different, try not to picture that. Although looking like, and in one story surrendering their powers to try and be with a mortal like mermaids, there is a different bit of folklore that the origins and powers match up to. Japanese Onryo. A Rushalka is a powerful spirit of vengeance in a lot of stories. There's a lot more to say before I get to this though. The assorted Rushalka as you head closer to Europe tend to be beautiful enchanting creatures, more like the common idea of a siren from Greek mythology. As you head up into Russia though, you get naked twisted abominations that ambush travellers to drag them off and torture them. Rushalka are Slavic spirits of vengeance and somewhat terrifying. This is a bit of an oversimplification. These are a significant part of the cultures their stories are told within and have evolved quite a lot over time. Even without accounting for change over time, there is a lot of regional variance. But the more vicious stories certainly stand out as you go digging. The more vicious stories also did one key thing to really surprise me. As a general trend, normally the older stories are the nastier ones. You get to the unsanitized original stories then. The good stuff. Old fairy tales and myth are effectively the origins of what is now the horror genre. Then, as time goes on, they get cleaned up a little. The variants go through a survival of the fittest process where the happier endings and strongest moral lessons are selected. Modern adaptations turn the madness right down and usually slap a generic hero's journey over the top of everything as well. You go from dancing on hot coals until death to happily ever after. Except that Rashalka did this in reverse. Older stories, once favoured by opera shows, see them as graceful water spirits, much more benign, more like a nymph or naiad from further over into Europe. But as you hit the 19th century and a more modern era, the assorted Rashalki take a dark turn. They become bitter, they become twisted, they become ugly, they become dangerous. This says quite a lot about the cultures that these stories are a part of, whether as a believer of the supernatural, in which case, as the times changed, the Rashalka grew bitter, turning against the industrializing humankind, or else as a skeptic looking at sociological change in how the story shifted with local attitudes. It is here where they seem to line up more with the Japanese Onryo, being made when a young woman is either murdered in the water or else drowns herself, a tragic origin making a powerful, vengeful spirit that will lash out at anyone coming close to the place of death. Even the nice Rushalki, or Virai, are worrying in a remarkably fey way. They are said to emerge from the waters in June and climb up into the trees to celebrate summer. Anyone foolish enough to join in with their revelry, attracted by their otherworldly singing, is then doomed to dance until they die of exhaustion. Everywhere the Virai and their victims trod along the ground, new growth would spring up as a part of the enchantment. 
This, uh, happy is the wrong word. This more glamorous alternative doom to the more twisted Rishalka as you head east does seem to tie in, though. A common purpose across the Rishalkai. The more torture-happy monstrous Rishalka of Russia are also known for draining the life force out of their victims. While for different reasons, to create new natural growth as opposed to vampiric hunger, all Rishalki are still capable of using up a human's vitality and discarding the victim's corpses after. So no matter what Rishalki you've blundered into, remember the Ghost Story Guy's Nature PSA. Nature! Stay out of it. Especially the trees and water. This is a life-saving public service announcement, people. Lady Midday. When you're looking at scary stories, it's difficult to really sell a story set in the daylight, but this legend depends upon the sun and managed to be pretty unnerving anyway. This is the story of the Noon Witch, or alternatively Noon Wraith, Polodnika, Lady Midday. When workers were out on the hottest days, there was going to be a worrying chance a spectral woman in white may be stalking the edges of the fields looking for prey. Sometimes they are not seen, only felt. Other times, an unnatural dust cloud will murk out where Polodnika is roaming. So she catch any unwary worker who didn't pay attention to the warning signs and promptly get indoors, will be touched by this sun-loving spectre, a touch that can bestow many terrible gifts. Muscles cramping up with crippling pain, collapsing from exhaustion, even being consumed by madness. It's best not to be touched by the noon wraith at all than risk it. Might be a cramp neck, might be the total destruction of your sanity, might not be worth risking it at all. And this is one far-reaching tale, from Poland and the eastern Slavic countries, all the way west across various Germanic cultures, where you're more likely to find the name Mitaxfrau. If you're looking at folklore purely through the lens of parable, Polodnika appears to be a cautionary tale about the dangers of working under the heat of high noon, the Lady in White being an anthropomorphization of heat stroke that people who toiled under the hot sun in centuries past told stories about to get a better grasp of the physical danger. If you look at Lady Midday through a more literal interpretation, the dust clouds sweeping down onto the farmlands heralding a merciless wraith, they are instead a terrifying entity that proves not even the bright light of high noon day can be a refuge from the supernatural. Which is... what's the opposite of comforting? It may just be that I watched a film about this story recently, but this weirdly feels like the total opposite of a Japanese yokai from the other side of the world called Yuki Onna. Yuki Onna, or the Snow Woman, would come in the night for travellers who got caught out by the weather and steal their heat to kill them. Both frequently are seen as a woman dressed in white stalking extreme weather for victims. Just a random cross-connection in my head. I do intend to get back to Yuki Onna soon when I circle back around to another yokai episode. Old World, Old Vampire Stories I couldn't dabble in Slavic folklore without taking on the blood-sucking undead, as the region has some of the oldest vampire stories on record. Especially Poland. It may even be the origin of the word vampire. Uh, Varpiez. I, I think I pronounced that right. Hang on. Oh no, Google isn't helping. Uh, Vopiez. Uh, I'm sorry, Poland. I'm going to hope that's close and muddle on. Anyway, blood-sucking undead. That someone could rise from the grave as a vapiers was taken as a given in some times and places going back through history. While it could just happen, there were risks of potential reanimation to look out for. Physical deformities in life such as a curved spine, being born with teeth, or having an animal jump over your fresh grave. Not being baptised is a risk too, but it seems to be a risk of basically anything from my ongoing research. 
If you weren't dedicated to God, then your corpse seems to have a high risk of being a useful empty vessel after your death for something else. As posthumous transformation into a ravenous monster was seen as a relatively high risk, the varied regions have assorted methods of dealing with the hungry corpse before it can stalk the loved ones of the deceased. Piling up rocks on top of the grave seems to be a simple yet effective late measure if you aren't sure about exhuming the potential inhuman monster to check. If you had suspicions ahead of interring the dead, or had no choice but to dig them back up, there are a few measures to get them to stay down at night. Stuffing their mouth with a rock or burying them face down to confuse them when they reawaken can work in a pinch. The better prepared can nail them to the back of the coffin with a stake through the heart or, and this is easily my favourite, rig a sickle trap just above their neck so that if they sit up they decapitate themselves. The sickle trap really is the best of both worlds. You don't desecrate the corpse in case it hasn't turned, but if it has turned, you can get it to decapitate itself as it springs to unlife in the night. This all seems to fit in with standard vampire lore, and is probably the genesis of a large chunk of it given that these are the oldest recorded stories of what we would expect from your standard revenant hunter in the night. There's only one small detail which didn't become as popular. Instead of sprouting fangs, a vapeurs instead develops a barb under the tongue to pierce their prey and feast upon blood. That's all for this episode. As with every region-based Luke lore yet, there's absolutely loads left to tackle in the Slavic countries. From dark old gods to assorted beasts scattered across the countryside, I'll almost certainly be back here someday in the near future. If you have any cool leads for me, definitely send them over. I have an ongoing Luke lore planner to refer to with neat links and names to look up later. If you do want to contact me, there's the show's dedicated email, lukelawgsg at gmail.com and the general show email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Both myself and the main show are really easy to find on Facebook and Twitter if you want to make day-to-day -day contact, as well as there being a very active Instagram account a lot of the community gets involved with. If you want to support the show directly, definitely take out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. It'll get you access to all sorts of GSG goodies at different tiers, my incentive being that Luke episodes go up to patrons a month early. As ever though, the best thing anyone can do to support the show is to give it a listen. Share this around if you think you may know someone who may be interested, leave a review if you get the chance because that really does signal boost me quite a lot, and most of all, I hope you enjoy what I'm doing here. Goodbye for now. <laughs>